like to invite you to open your Bibles with me. We turn this afternoon to the New Testament, two passages from the book of Acts. First of all, Acts chapter 4, and we begin the reading at verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. They had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. The young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard those things. We turn forward a few pages to Acts 9. Between Acts 4 and Acts 9, most likely the better part of three years have passed. At the beginning of Acts 9, we have the account of Paul, whom I trust most of you know well. Having stood by this watch, Stephen be martyred, Paul turned into an enemy of the church, and he went about seeking to persecute the church. God intervened on the way to Damascus. Paul had a dramatic conversion, Ananias is there, some time has passed, and now we pick up the reading where Paul comes to Jerusalem for the very first time after being converted, Acts 9, 26. At this point, Paul's name is Saul also. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. 
And he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he's going with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists. But they attempted to kill him. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. May God bless the reading and the exposition of his word. As noted in the bulletin, I hope to begin this afternoon a series of sermons on Barnabas, most likely three or four sermons. I don't know about you, but Barnabas is one of those mysterious people in the Bible. On the one hand, he's relatively well known. He appears on about five occasions in the book of Acts, about 24 references to him in the book of Acts, as well as a couple in the epistles of Paul. And yet we really don't know a lot about him. He's just there, it seems. When you think of the book of the Acts, which is sometimes called the book of the Acts of Apostles, we can, it's disputable about how accurate that name is. Perhaps it better be named the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. We leave that aside. But in the book of Acts, it's certainly Paul who has the dominant role, if you will, we have Peter, James, and John, you have Paul and Timothy, and then you have sort of the secondary group of leaders in the church that we're introduced with, Barnabas, Silas, Luke. We don't have a book of the Bible written by Barnabas. As a matter of fact, we have not a single word of direct quote from his mouth. And yet, in the book of Acts, he plays a significant role that really can only be understood if we look at the situations into which he is in which he is introduced to us. And so this afternoon in our first service sermon on that, I want to look on Barnabas as a church member. And I, we will take as our text, verse 36, where we have one of the Acts of the Apostles. They rename Barnabas, we are told, to be the son of encouragement. That will be our text this afternoon. We'll focus on Barnabas, the church member, focus particularly on Acts 5 and Acts 9, the two passages we have read. And then hopefully on the next occasion, we'll look at Barnabas as an office bearer. In Acts 11, he is sent out by the church with official responsibilities. We'll look at him as he carries them out as an office bearer. And then there is one or two sermons in terms of him dealing with conflict, both within and outside of the church, which we have in the latter half of the book of Acts. So for this afternoon, Barnabas, the encouraging church member, we see, first of all, that there is a modest introduction to Barnabas. Secondly, it's emphasized by a solemn context. And thirdly, we will seek to derive some lessons from this for the New Testament church. I mentioned this when we started our series on Abraham, but it bears repeating. It is very important when we take biblical characters to emphasize the fact that we're not preaching the character. It's very, us, it's very easy for us to take the Bible and to take a look at the just over 3,000 different people who fill the Bible and divide them into two groups. There are the good guys and the bad guys. 
And sometimes we can read the Bible and take biblical characters and say, well, if only we can be more like these good guys and less like those bad guys, well, then we're going to be good Christians. That is definitely not either faithful to Scripture or at all the purpose. The story of the Scriptures in general is the story of the work of God. It's a declaration of who God is and a calling of a church to live to his honor and glory. And the book of Acts specifically is a book that is a historical record that is given to us of how God gathered the New Testament church. Begin in Acts 1 with the story, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will remember that already in the upper room, as we have the account in John 15 to 17, The disciples were told that Jesus would have to leave them, but it was for their own good. The Comforter, the Holy Spirit, would come. That indeed they were to go out to preach the gospel, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Acts, we have an account of that happening. In Acts 2, we have the account of Pentecost. Peter goes out and boldly preaches, and what happens? 3,000 are saved. But what does Luke, the inspired author of the book of Acts, do? Does he begin to give us accounts of all of their names and all of their lives and what they did? No. The end of Acts 2, if you'll notice, we have that description of the church. A beautiful description of that church in unity, living living together, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They went, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. A couple months ago, I, we went together through Acts 3 and that account of Peter and John coming into the temple. You remember the early worship of the church. These were Jews. They didn't have a church building. They didn't know exactly the the formulas of worship and what New Testament worship were things that they were learning. And so they gathered daily at the temple and they gathered by that gate, beautiful in the temple. And as Peter and John are going one day, they heal this man and they declare to them that silver and gold they have none, but what they have they could give them. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. The power of the gospel and the power of Jesus who is the center of the gospel is revealed again. But with this growth of the church, 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, adding daily, comes also persecution. Peter and John are arrested. They preach. At the beginning of Acts 4, interestingly enough, we see the fact that they are persecuted But with this persecution comes increased growth, Acts 4.4. Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men that came were about 5,000. So now here we are, just a few months after the death of Jesus Christ, and the church of Jerusalem has grown by at least 8,000, plus those who are being added daily to the church. What would we do if 8,000 new members came to our church in the next month? Well, we rejoice, and they certainly rejoiced. 
We have an account of that rejoicing. We had it at the end of Acts 2. We also had it at the end of Acts 4 when we started reading our text. They were of one mind and one heart. There was unity in the church. But there was also great need in the church. We don't know exactly, but it's most likely that in that context in Jerusalem, joining the church was to put your employment at risk, at least in many cases. And with 8,000 Jews came not just the rich, but also the poor, those who had all the needs of everyday life. What we have for us laid out so beautifully as we pick up the passage in Acts 4.31 is a sense of how the church, by joining the church, people are transformed. They are thinking not about me, but about we. Did you catch that as we read the passage? Great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds that were sold and laid them, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. What is described for us is a context in which the grace of God has a powerful impact on the lives of those who heard the gospel and heard and believed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a church we'd all love to be a part of, isn't it? That's the context in which, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke writes, Joseph was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. Joseph is by no means the only person who sold his property. It's very clear that all are as were selling their property. Now, we don't need to take that literally. It did not mean that everyone sold everything and they lived in some sort of commune. As a matter of fact, we have plenty of evidence in the book of Acts that was not the case. There are many believers who still have property throughout who are present at this time. No, what it meant was the fact that when they looked at their own goods, and needs, they didn't look at it in the context of their own family and their own personal desires. They looked at it in the context of the church. And here was this church, and when they saw the needs in the church, they responded. And if they had resources to supply those needs, they were generous in doing so. And that was true of many in the church. So why then is this man Joseph, the Levite, selected? Why is he pointed out? Well, there's no immediate evidence in the passage in terms of distinctive. We actually have here the mention of the fact that the apostles renamed him son of encouragement, and then we don't hear about him again until Acts Acts 9, the next passage three years later. So what we have is an ordinary churchman, Joseph, Joseph, with a very ordinary name, and yet it's pointed out for us that he was renamed the son of encouragement. The only other details we know about this man is that he's a Levite of the country of Cyprus. From Acts 12, we know that his Aunt Mary and his cousin Mark are also in Jerusalem. 
We may presume from that that perhaps the family or extended family moved from Cyprus to Jerusalem. What the occasion was or what brought them there, we really don't have any idea. While we're not told explicitly in order to sell some land, you need some land. And presumably he is at least of middle, if not upper middle class, means. Whether he's a business person or unsure. Now it's interesting, it's highlighted for us that he's a Levite. Now Levites, if we follow the strict application of the Old Testament, are not supposed to own land. There's no commentary here on Acts in terms of whether or not the Lord approved or did not approve of him owning the land. It would appear that at the time of the New Testament, some, some indeed, even many of these Mosaic prohibitions were not being followed. No, as Joseph is presented to us, he is one example out of many of those who were active involved in the unity of the church. The apostles rename him son of encouragement. Well, because we have subsequent texts and we get to know Barnabas a little better later on in the book of Acts, and indeed even as the passage with Paul makes clear, it would appear that Barnabas has the disposition to be an encouraging personality. There's something more than that, I think, here. It is true, even as a congregation together, we all get to know each other's personalities, isn't it? If there's something to be organized, and we were sitting around with a group saying we need to organize a church picnic, a church barbecue, there are a number of names that immediately jump to mind as the people most obvious who are gifted. They've done it before, we know their gifts. Other people are known for different gifts. We know each other by our gifts. And sometimes even within the church context, we become familiar and reference that. What is happening here, though, I think, is something more than just the apostle saying, well, Barnabas, he's good at encouraging. We'll come back to this in our final point. We will see that in Romans 12, the gift of encouragement is one of the specific gifts that Paul says is given to the church. And what I think by the Holy, God by the Holy Spirit is instructing us herein is that the fact that God provides the gifts that are needed at particular times. And he doesn't do it simply because of our personalities. It's true, our gifts are probably most often in line with our personalities, but it is not our personalities that determine our gifts. The apostles rename him Barnabas. The word, the name Barnabas in Aramaic, the bar means son, so son of. The word nabas actually isn't really a proper Aramaic word. The closest we have is a word for see and another word for prophet, but neither of those really fit. It's almost as if they sort of made up a new name. And they defined it and said, which is son of encouragement. We're going to call you Barnabas. We're going to call you by this unique name. 
and we recognize the gift of encouragement that you are bringing to the church. Now certainly all of that makes sense, doesn't it, if we turn the page a few pages over to Acts 9 as we read it. Certainly there we see perhaps in all of the accounts of Barnabas the clearest illustration of him as an encourager. Paul has come to Jerusalem. He's not been in town for over three years. And all the church in Jerusalem remembers of Paul as he was the one who early on in the stages of the church was the one who was going about seeking to persecute and to kill believers. Paul was somebody they were afraid of. Paul certainly was a bad guy. And now, undoubtedly, in the three years, given the connections that existed between the church, the church at Jerusalem probably had heard something from the church at Damascus about the fact that Paul was no longer the tyrant he once was, that something had happened to him and Ananias had visited him, but then Paul disappeared. After that, for about three years, we read in in Galatians, Paul went to the Arabian Desert after Damascus for the better part of three years, and now he comes to Jerusalem. And the account is pretty clear, isn't it? As we began reading, Saul, verse 26, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Here comes Paul. And no one in the church wants anything to do with them. And we all get it. And then something happens. Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Again, the scriptures are very modest and not very descriptive in terms of why was Barnabas different than everyone else in the church at that time. In a future chapter, we're going to see Barnabas described for us as a man, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and he's going to be sent to Antioch and elsewhere. But it's clear that the reputation that he has, which will cause, as we'll see in our next sermon, the church to call Barnabas and send him to specific office, those very gifts are evident, and it would appear that Barnabas takes it upon himself here as a member. It doesn't appear that anybody sent him to Paul. Barnabas went on his own to Paul. As just a regular member of the church. And he seeks to understand what has happened to Paul. There's no evidence they had anything in common before. Paul's from... Tarsus, Barnabas is from Cyprus, so presumably both of them speak Greek. We don't have any details of their meeting, but whatever happened, Paul, Barnabas goes to Paul, listens to his story, and is prepared to risk his reputation. And he takes Paul to the, to the disciples. We know from Galatians 1.18 that Paul actually only spent a couple of weeks at this time in Jerusalem, primarily meeting with Peter and uh, with James, and then spending his time debating with the Hellenists, the Greeks. What happens is that 
Barnabas has risked his reputation, brings Paul to the disciples. The disciples, based on the word of Barnabas' interview, review Paul, receive Paul in very short order. Paul is in a teaching position in the church in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the hostile, his profile as a servant of Christ becomes so strong that within just a few weeks' time, at risk of his own life, he has to be sent elsewhere. Those are the first two mentions of Barnabas. Those are the only mentions we have of Barnabas as a church member. And it would be easy to read the first 11 verses of Acts until we come to Barnabas being sent to Antioch and say, well, he's just there incidentally. But we know that nothing is in the Scriptures by accident. So why does the Holy Spirit draw our attention to Barnabas in these circumstances? Well, I wonder whether or not it is to encourage the Barnabases among us. Are there any church members here among us who have that gift of encouragement? Are there any of you who look at what God has given you and in many ways you're an ordinary member of the church, your name isn't in the bulletin, you're not in leadership positions? And yet you have, as Barnabas had, an important role in the church. This is the story. We believe in the sovereignty of God in all of these things. But humanly speaking, if it wasn't for Barnabas, we don't get Paul. There are essential roles that are being played. And I think the point, especially as what we have here is not an account of the personalities that make up the New Testament church, but instead we have the story of how God is building his church. We have a sense being emphasized here that every member of the church is called and is part of what the church is doing. The church is not about her leaders. We belong to the church not out of merit, achievement, or family name. No. Barnabas, along with the other nine or 10,000 people who were part of that early Jerusalem church, were there because they believed in the power of the resurrection. We have that told explicitly to us at the, in Acts 4. In the middle of that description, with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That is what they all had in common. They believed in Jesus and who he was. Their eyes were open. And what are the consequences when your eyes are open to the power of the resurrection? Well, your perspective on life changes no longer about me. It's about him and it's about we. And indeed, that is, I want to suggest to you, part of the message that we have embedded in these details. And that is, as we will see in our second place, emphasized by a very solemn context. You cannot faithfully exposit Acts 4 at the end, in the story of Barnabas, 
without reading Acts 5. Even the grammar points you to that. We have the general description that ends at verse 35 and then in verse 36, and Joseph, who was also named Barnabas. We have two verses about him. And then we have Acts 5.1. But Ananias and Sapphira. The two stories belong together, even grammatically. So what we have here is is Luke laying the general picture of what the church as a whole is, and then he provides two examples to illustrate a point. On the one hand, we have Barnabas the encourager. On the other hand, we have Ananias and Sapphira. And we read the story. I don't know about you. Ever since I was a kid and this story was read, I thought it was one of the most unfair stories in the whole Bible. Really? Ananias and Sapphira, yes. They gave of their gifts, and no, they didn't give at all, but certainly they were wrong. But doesn't it seem harsh that it's as if they're struck down by lightning? And we want to look at the story, and we're brought immediately to want to look at their eternal destiny. I want to avoid that this afternoon. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, among many other commentators, highlight for us that we ought not to jump to the conclusion that just because Ananias and Sapphira were struck down, that meant they were not saved. The Scriptures are silent, and we need to be silent. The point is that apart from the grace of God, none of us are saved. And Ananias and Sapphira are not going to be saved, and Barnabas is not saved because of giving rightly. That's a consequence of being saved. That's not a reason for being saved. So we need to be very careful here not to jump to their eternal destiny because that's not really the focal point. What we have is a contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira in the context of the gathering of the church. You see, Barnabas along with the other believers who saw the need in the church, had the eyes to see what God was doing in the church and had been transformed so that what he had of his own, he didn't think of as his own. His thinking had been changed. And he was now thinking as a member of the church and he was bringing out of thankfulness and in the context of need. And that's really the posture of a church member. It's an otherness posture. It doesn't look to ourselves, first of all. When we have been convinced by the power of the resurrection, we see that Christ died not for himself, but he died to save others, including ourselves. And we live out of the truth of that resurrection. And that very truth changes our own perspective so that we don't live thinking about me. Contrast that with Ananias and Sapphira. What is clear? Well, it's clear from the story that they looked around and they saw Barnabas and all of these others bringing gifts to the apostles and they lived in the context of this church unity and this this excitement. And they wanted to be like Barnabas. They wanted people to speak well of them and the way that people spoke well of Barnabas. Is that the only thing? 
We don't know. Was it perhaps that they were worried about their own financial well-being and put some in reserve? Was it materialism on their part? Peter makes very clear they were not obligated to give anything. They wanted credit. And certainly, if we look at this, and especially the grammar of the passage, it's, the story is told as one of contrast between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. There are a couple of lessons that come very clearly through here. Let me mention three. First of all, God is not mocked. When we come to church, it's not a trivial thing. We're not just joining another club. The church is not the Rotary Club. The church is the gathering of God with his people, and it's a holy place, and it involves holy things. Peter's direct to Ananias, you have not lied to men, but to God. If we have been convinced by the power of the resurrection, and we know that God indeed is an all-powerful God who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, If that's the power of God and that's what we're staking our salvation on, then surely we ought to know that we can't keep secrets from God and give him just a portion of the proceeds as if he's not going to know the rest. We serve a holy and a righteous God. It's interesting in the scriptures there are at least four occasions in which Men and women are suddenly struck down. First is in Leviticus 10. The first several chapters of Leviticus, we have a very detailed outline of the sacrifices. And we go seemingly in extreme detail. We're in the midst of Leviticus in our family devotions and as someone who doesn't have a great stomach, reading the detail of exactly how the entrails of all these sacrifices are to be dealt with is not wonderful reading right after supper. And yet we have nine chapters of it. God is very particular about his worship. We have an account of all the sacrifices, and then we have an account in the installation of the Aaronic priesthood, and then we come to Leviticus 10. After all these precise instructions... We read that Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took the censer, put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. If you're getting tired of all the details of Leviticus 1 to 9, you get sobered up pretty quickly when you read Leviticus 10. God means what he's saying. These details are not trivial. Nadab and Abihu thought, oh, well, we sort of got it right and took it into their own minds. And it wasn't their mistake as much as it was the heart that caused that. And God struck them down. 2 Samuel 6, David's taking the altar to Jerusalem, ark to Jerusalem. You remember the story, he puts the ark on the cart with the oxen, not according to the commands of the Lord. He ought to have known better. As they're going, the oxen stumble. 
You remember the story, Uzzah sticks out his hands to keep the ark from falling off of the cart? We're ready to commend him. As we're, if we don't know the story, you're reading it, and you're ready to commend him for doing a good job and saving the ark from falling on the ground. That's not what happens, is it? The anger of the Lord was aroused against us, and God struck him there for his error, and he died by the ark of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 26, we have Uzziah the king. Here's a little different. Uzziah is getting frustrated. He wants to burn incense on the altar instead of the priest. Azariah the priest comes and follows him, but Uzziah doesn't wait. He proceeds, and what happens? He becomes a leper. He's driven out. We read he was a leper till the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, because he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Clearly, these and various other passages of Scripture teach us that God is a holy God. And the worship of God is something to be taken very seriously. What is also clear when we put these passages in the context of the Holy Scripture is that we're not saved because of right worship. None of us in ourselves can come before God. It's not as if those who did not get struck down therefore automatically worship right. It's not as if Barnabas is rewarded because he gave his gifts out of a right spirit. No, in fact, when we take the scriptures, teachings of scriptures on this, we see that Barnabas can only give out of a right spirit because of having been changed by the Spirit of God. But the first lesson certainly is this from this passage. God is jealous regarding his worship. The church is a holy and a solemn place and God is not to be trifled with. Secondly, as we learn of, of this, we see the fact that God intends this message to be heard. Did you notice as we read the passage that great fear came upon all the church? The psalmists frequently speak of worshiping with fear. The fear of worshiping God does not mean being afraid. It means a holy reverence. It means putting into its right place. When we have been transformed by the power of God as was Barnabas, we are changed, but we also have a particular perspective on the worship of God. And God uses also what happens in his church. I'm not going to go on at great lengths, but one can even talk about church discipline in the context of this. When church discipline happens, does it happen in a very direct way, one might argue, with God himself stepping in front of Peter and putting down Ananias and Sapphira for for their misdeeds. The point isn't just about Ananias and Sapphira. The point is that all the church may hear that God is a holy God. The book of Acts is a book about the establishment of the church and the principles that gird the establishment of the church. 
Our God is a holy and awesome God. But thirdly, let's not lose sight of this. It isn't these events in themselves. At the end of the day, the worship of God took place and the church grew because the apostles testified of the power of the resurrection. All of which brings us to, in our final point, some lasting lessons for the church today. Let me mention five, and they'll be very unequal in terms of length. First of all, church matters. It's God's house, and he lives there. The Old Testament worship had the altar in the middle of the worship service. Why? Because the sacrifices had to be sacrificed there. We could not worship God till we were restored with a right relationship with God, and it was the blood of the sacrifices of the goats and of the bulls that pointed to Christ's coming. We're in the New Testament. There's no altar here in front of the church. What's in the middle of the church? The pulpit. Why? Because the pulpit is the place where the word of God comes, a word which speaks of Christ having reconciled himself and paid the price so that sinners might be saved and the church might be gathered. That's why the pulpit belongs in the middle of the church. Because it's as the blood flows from the pulpit as it did from the altar that we can be restored to a right relationship with God and that's where the story of the church begins. It's a holy place. We're dealing with a perfectly righteous and holy God. I remember as a child I was deeply affected by a minister who emphasized the fact that when you come to church, there ought to be a sign above the outside door, he said, that says, danger. Enter at your own risk. I'll never forget. He warned, you will never leave the sanctuary the way you came in. You either will be softened to the gospel or you will be hardened by it. you and I are going to be different people at 5 o'clock than we were at 3.30 because you went to church. It's a powerful place. It's a place in which people are changed. Is it not true that we have such small pictures of the church today? Something we do for a few hours on a Sunday. No. It's the church of the living God, and he lives there. Secondly, the church is a place we don't come along, but we come with fellow believers. It's not a place we visit. It's a place we belong. If you've been changed by the power of the blood of Christ, you've been brought into the bride of Christ. Notice all the verbs in the New Testament are plural. The church is a body the church is a bride. We're brought into the bride. We're a building. Read the passage here. It's all about the unity of the church. We sang from, from the Psalms also about the unity of the church. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, You're a chosen people, a holy nation, that you may declare the promises of him who called you from darkness to light. You're brought, you become a holy people. When you come to church, you can never be a church member all by yourself. You belong with everybody else. Ultimately, in the one unified church that God has called from every tribe and nation and tongue throughout history, 
but here in God's providence and the specific manifestation of the local congregation you've been called to be part of. Thirdly, church members are not observers, but they're part of God's gracious plan and purpose. When you come to church, you're not here to receive, you are also here to give. The bride of Christ is in union and fellowship with him, and together we are being prepared for eternity. Barnabas was a man needed in his time. What we have in our passage here is Barnabas, an ordinary church member, having his gifts and using them. Yes, in the future, God's going to call him to special office, but today we want to focus on his general office. Someone says, wait a minute, I'm not a Barnabas. I don't have that gift of encouragement. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 12. Paul, writing to Romans, describes the gifts that are present in the church. He mentions seven of them. Romans 12, starting at verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. For ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching He who exhorts, and by the way, the root of the word exhort here is the same word as we have for encouragement in Acts 4. He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. There are many gifts to be used. I once heard a speaker illustrate this, not in the context of a church, but in the context of a dysfunctional emergency room, which I found very helpful to understand the different gifts that Paul's talking about. He said, imagine you're coming into an emergency room and it is totally dysfunctional. Well, maybe we don't even have to imagine that these days. People are all over the place. There seems to be no organization. There are doctors and nurses around, but nobody seems to be doing anything. He says, imagine with me each of these seven people walking into the room and observe the differences with how how they might deal with the situation. The gift of prophecy is a gift that calls to account. I imagine the prophet coming to the emergency room, taking a moment to see the situation, and then declaring in a prophetic and bold voice, saying, wait a minute, quiet everyone, doctors, nurses, administrators. What in the world's going on here? This isn't what you were trained. This isn't how you were trained to run an emergency room. Do your job. The prophet is is a calling to account of what we know. Prophets are bold and direct. The gift of ministry, as we have it, and I don't have time to get into the roots of all of these words, so I'll try to illustrate it in the context of the emergency room. The gift of ministry is someone who is drawn to the needs of someone. The person with that gift of ministry comes into this big room, and instead of seeing the big picture, what they do is they quickly identify and triage, and here's the person who's in deepest need. And they come and they immediately start dealing with the need of that particular person. It's the gift of ministry. 
teaching is related but different from prophetic ministry, the teacher, the prophet assumes the staff knows, and he calls them to account. The teacher assumes the staff does not know. And so he calls everyone to attention and then begins to instruct them on what they should do next, the gift of teaching. The gift of exhortation, as I mentioned, is similar to the gift of encouragement. Barnabas has the gift of exhortation. He's the encourager. He took Paul and the council together, and he opened the doors to help them do what otherwise they thought they would not be able to do. The context of the emergency room, the encourager comes, the exhorter comes and says, wait a minute, guys. Instead of calling them to account, he comes with words of encouragement and says, we can do better. How about we work together on this? He comes alongside and gets, takes their despondent spirits and gets them to a, to a place in which they can see possibility. Then there's the gift of giving. The giver comes to the emergency room and says, well, wait a minute, the problem is we don't have enough staff. We don't have enough resources. And he goes and he gives and he provides what's needed. And then we have the ruler The ruler is the person who takes charge. He comes to the, or she comes to the emergency room. And she takes over as the leader. She becomes the de facto director. And she begins to, through good leadership, see that things start changing. With a few minutes and some time of good leadership, all of a sudden the dysfunction and the noise and the babble becomes something of coordination and coherence. And then we have, seventhly, the ministry of mercy. This is the person who's filled with compassion and empathy. This is the person who walks into the emergency room and sees that lonely person in the far corner who's been neglected for a very long time and comes and hugs them. We need all of those gifts in the church. what is needed in the church being the hospital for the brokenhearted. We need all of those gifts, including the gift that you've been given. Fourthly, the church on earth is a mixed body. It's often as messy. And when Christ comes to the church, Satan usually follows. The book of Acts makes that very clear, doesn't it? The early chapters of the book of Acts have growth of the church, and we have persecution from without. What does Peter say to Sapphira in Acts 5.9? Or sorry, to Ananias in Acts 5.3. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? When the Holy Spirit is active and is bringing people into a living relationship of the pow- uh, with Christ, and convincing them of the power of the resurrection, you can be sure Satan was there as he was in the Garden of Eden, saying to A, did God really say? Are you sure you can believe him? As I mentioned, we don't need to judge Ananias and Sapphira. But they are there as a warning to us. Fifthly, 
The gifts in the church are proof of Christ's ascension and promise to be with the church. Before he left, Jesus said, he was going to leave, he was going to send the Holy Spirit, and the apostolic gifts would come to the church. And it is through those gifts that the church would be built. Why is Barnabas, the church member, highlighted for us in this passage? All I can conclude is a, it's a reconfirmation of the core teaching of Scripture of how God builds the church. And he builds it also through the members of the church. He comes and he converts them. And he changes them from making themselves idols to focused on him and loving his bride. He comes and lives in their hearts, and he sanctifies them, making them holy, changing step by step, day by day, their desires to be more and more. And he cultivates their gifts. Part of being sanctified and filled with the Holy Spirit is to have your gifts and to use your gifts in service of God and of his church. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15, If I'm delayed, I write, so that you might know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. I leave you this afternoon with two questions. Are you living members of Christ's church? And is the result of the Holy Spirit working in the church and consequently working in you such that you have an increasing sense of the holiness of God in communion with Him and you're using your gifts in His service? Let's pray together. Lord God, most holy, we come also at the end of the service to acknowledge you. Lord, we have opened the word that you have given us, a word which instructs us about you and your ways, and we have sought to listen carefully to the instruction also as we have it in these early chapters of the book of Acts. We pray, Lord, work with your Holy Spirit. Apply the word to each of us as we have need. Lord, if there are those who've come this afternoon as Ananias and Sapphira with selfish motives, seeking more concerned about their own reputation and living out of the fruits of the, re of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, O oh Lord, we pray in your mercy. Will you convict them of this? Lord, will you show them of the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ? Lord, that we may give up of ourselves. Lord, that we also have the Holy Spirit come and apply the word and live in our hearts, sanctifying us and forming us more and more to his image. We thank you for this day of worship. We pray, forgive that which was sinful. Be with us as we go from this place. Bless us and make us a blessing. Bring us together at the appointed time. We ask much. We deserve nothing. We pray also that our worship may be a foretaste of that eternal worship. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Amen.